In July of 2008, a strange, unidentified creature washed up on the shores of Montauk Island. Residents and beachcombers alike are accustomed to finding crabs, fish, or even a whale from time to time that gets washed up here. But this time, it was different. This creature was like part dog, part pig, and part reptile. It had a beak that looked like a bird. Now, if any of this sounds familiar, well, it's one occurrence of what became known as the Montauk Monster. But tonight, we're going further. There's only one place such a creature could have come from, and that is Plum Island. It's just a few miles up from where the monster had washed up on shore. Now, Plum Island has a long mysterious history as a top-secret government facility that created bioweapons, animal hybrids, and was even rumored to experiment on people. So many people believe that this Montauk monster was just the tip of the iceberg. Because Plum Island, my friends, is in fact a government facility and did in fact employ World War II Nazi scientists to do experiments. They also do admit openly to keeping and studying all sorts of rare diseases. They have all been rumored to be involved in unknowing human victims with biohazard experiments, including, but not limited, to Lyme disease and using ticks. And there were many, many more creature carcasses found over the decades, including some of the humanoid type. Join us tonight if you dare as we go searching Plum Island in Suffolk County, New York. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Wow, that's, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll admit, I found all of what you were talking about in one way or another, but there's a lot there. There, there is a lot to this story. Now, to be fair, I kind of thought it was related to some other stories and then my research kind of took me in weird directions, but I kind of narrowed it back down just to, to pinpoint on a map where we're talking about. There's an island basically considered part of the town of Southold in Suffolk County, New York, situated in Gardner's Bay and it's east of Orient Point. It's off the eastern end of the North Fork coast of Long Island. Now, the island is about three miles long, one mile wide at its widest point, and has an area of 840 acres. And That's a pretty good-sized area. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty good-sized. This place, I mean, all the way back, it, this was purchased initially by the government during the Spanish-American War, and they built Fort Terry on the island. But it is currently a biocontainment level three facility, which means there's some pretty gnarly stuff that just, on that island. That just sounds like it's just made up out of a science fiction movie. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's just kind of what it sounds like. I didn't, I mean, I'm sure that I believe these things existed, but I wasn't sure how it all worked. And then I was doing my research and, and found, you know, there is one level higher than biocontainment three, obviously, which would be four. And we'll talk about that one later on. Mm-hmm. But this place, yeah, I mean, just kind of a brief summary. And, and Eric, you probably have way more, but like I said, it was, it was purchased by the government during the Spanish American war. They built Fort Terry there. Fort Terry would go on to be used by some mad scientist types, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. For years, the place was shrouded in mystery. People didn't understand, didn't know what was going on there. Lots of speculation. Then during World War II, it served as a research station, and experts were brought to the island to come up with that next super weapon to defeat the Nazis. And they experimented in everything, physics, chemistry. They developed, and, and you know, attempting to develop that next doomsday weapon. Then, of course... Like Eric said, after the Nazis were defeated and the war brought, was brought to an end, the fort became a stop for Nazi scientists on their way to America and became a, a staging ground for Operation Paperclip, which historically, that's the, the secret, secret in quotes, obviously, we all know about it now. But the program where they brought uh, about 1,600 German scientists, engineers, and technicians from over there in Germany and brought them here to America post-World War II. And you, you're talking guys that developed, you know, rockets and all kinds of stuff. Even those, I mean, that worked like directly or in just a couple steps down from Adolf Hitler. Yeah. 
you know, come to work for us. We'll we'll waive all of your wartime crimes, and you'll just work for us and keep doing what you're doing. And and someday we could probably do an episode just on all these weird Nazi programs, but they were into a lot of weird stuff. The, these scientists, you know, as part of Operation Paperclip, they were given asylum in the U.S. between 1945 and 59. And then after World War II, the fort was closed and deactivated for about seven years. And then it was reactivated in 1952 by the U.S. Army Chemical Corps. And then during 1954, there was an outbreak of foot and mouth disease in America, mm-hmm. which I guess ravages cattle. Highly, and highly contagious. At that point, the location was taken over by the USDA, and it became the site of what is now the Plum Island Animal Disease Center. Now, a little bit more about Plum Island. What's strange is it doesn't even appear on many maps. So it's like, obviously, it's being trying to be hidden to some degree, at least. It is a true island, so the only way, obviously, to gain access there, uh, one, is by invitation only, but it's by ferry, boat, or helicopter. Government-managed ferry is how the actual employees get there. A 30-minute ferry ride. 30-minute ferry ride. But now, don't just take off in your little airboat quite yet if you think you're going to get over there, because <laughs> no. uh, it is a top-secret clearance facility. And if you even get close to the shores of the island, you will be met with armed military guards asking you to leave immediately. Now, as Bill said, officially, Plum Island is now the Home to Animal Disease Center, a federal facility that studies livestock diseases, and to be quite honest, some of the worst of the worst kind. That is their, their mission statement, basically. Their, their job now is to study livestock diseases and to prevent impacts to American, American agriculture, American economy. Which, hey, I'm on board with that. That yeah. sounds good. That's a good thing, right? They also study diseases that have the ability to be transferred from animals to humans, such as West Nile, Lyme disease, and Ebola. Now, there's been some shadowy <laughs> involvement in this disease research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So not everything has always been on the up and up. Now, in specifically, as, as Bill alluded to, foot and mouth disease, African swine, fever, and avian flu, all of these are highly, highly contagious diseases. They often affect cows, sheep, pigs, goats, you know, that type of livestock. Now, the Plum Island Animal Disease Center is the only location, at least known, in all the United States sanctioned to work with live samples with these diseases, meaning they keep live disease vials of these and many others right there on the island. No other establishment is supposed to do that. In some cases, they even have live animals, which a lot of facilities aren't allowed to have either. Uh, Partially, I would say, because it's an island— but for some of these diseases, they can only really be studied when they're active. Yes. So you have to have a an animal living that specimen. is affected, infected by one of those diseases. Now, some of you may remember back in uh, 2001, uh, the UK had quite a little incident with foot and mouth disease. It cost them right at $10 billion of lost livestock that had to all be put down and the slaughter of right somewhere around 6 million animals. Now, that was whether they were affected or not, whether they were showing any symptoms or not. That's how serious this is. I was going to say, you can't take that chance. No. So. You, if, if one of them has got it in, in the country or a region, then you have to assume all of them will have it at some time or are affected. Now, Plum Island is supposed to be a medical research facility, as Bill and, and I had kind of already talked to. And it was originally under the umbrella of the Department of Agriculture. However, if you do a bit of investigation, uh, some in the last decade, it is now part of Homeland Security. So which is it and why? I can answer that. All right. It fell under the purview of Homeland Security because during our operations in Afghanistan as part of the War on Terror, there was an Al-Qaeda operative that was arrested in 2008 in Afghanistan. And there's a lot of stories and all that, but he had on him a handwritten list of potential targets mm-hmm. in America, and one of those targets was Plum Island. And it was for a possible, uh, you know, handwritten notes, maps, and details on possible mass attack yeah. and strategic points in America. So that rated pretty high for them. You see, when Plum Island opened its doors back in the early 1950s, there were not always about studying diseases to prevent them. They had more of a sinister agenda, we might say. They recruited Nazi scientists to work there and to develop and work on biohazard means to use these diseases to attack. 
In return, as I had mentioned, the Nazi scientists, uh, for their expertise, they were given full immunity, and any of their past war crimes were, were just wiped away. Now, these Nazi scientists worked alongside with some of the U.S.-owned uh, most elite personnel, including bioweapon designers. And recently, declassified documents became public in 1952, saying the Plum Island facility was actually developing a foot and mouth disease and trying to weaponize it. The files noted intent to expose the enemy's livestock, ultimately affecting their food supply chain. Going back to the Cold War, I believe the, the Soviets were always intended to be the targets of these. Although the Cuban government claims that in the 60s and 70s, we actually used bioweapons developed at Plum Island against them and their agriculture, specifically targeting pork, tobacco, and sugarcane. Yeah, as in 1971, a mysterious virus affected Cuba's pig or hog population, affecting their overall food source. In a period of two years, over a uh, half a million pigs had died or had to be slaughtered. The source was identified clearly as African swine fever, a highly contagious and fatal virus. This was the first and only spread of such a virus in the entire Western Hemisphere. With the fatality and concerns, Cuba was forced to annihilate every pig on the entire island. How in the world did African swine flu find its way to the island of Cuba? When there was no incoming trail, it was just as if it appeared on a blip out of nowhere. It seemed a mystery to everyone, everyone except the Cubans. The Cuban government publicly blamed the United States, more specifically the CIA. Our operation, Mongoose, which Bill had mentioned, was well known to the Cubans and the U.S. covert operations launched at Cuba in the 1960s. The primary objective was to remove Fidel Castro from power. While the U.S. was never implemented, documents were found that biowarfare was used as a piece of this puzzle in a plan to do so. The CIA then came forward and stated they had planned to spray botulinum toxin from overhead aircraft. Their reasoning for this was in order to save thousands of American soldiers. Cuban civilians, well, they wouldn't be as lucky. Aren't there like international treaties and whatnot that say we're not supposed to target civilian populations? Absolutely. I mean, but we only play by the rules when we want to. We talked about that at least in part with our harp episode, I believe, where yeah. we're not supposed to use certain types of weapons and bioweapons is one of those. And here it was speculated that we might have just done that. Yeah. But because of this toxin is one of the most ruthless toxins well, of all on the planet. I mean, without saying, I mean, botulinum toxin, that's botulism. Botulism. I mean, that's the, the, the stuff that gets in your canned goods and makes your cans explode. And is one of the most deadly infections you can get. And ironically, is also Botox. Oh, Botox is derived I from botulinum. I guess that makes sense, but wow. Yeah. So we inject our faces and lips. Well, and it's, it's partially it. because it, ca- it causes a degree of paralysis. So it loosens up those muscles. Mm. Now, if you, Another reason not to get it done. If you get a Botox shot at a shady, you know, uh, clinic. Backside of a tattoo get, parlor. Get, <laughs> yeah. It, it could go horribly wrong too. Well, it was speculated that spraying this out over that area, that approximately two to three percent of overall Cuban population would be annihilated. Now, you may think, ah, two to three percent. Well, I mean, any is bad, obviously, but while that may not sound like a lot, that would be tens of thousands of Cuban citizens. Now, luckily, Operation Mongoose never came to birth and it was removed from the table. But since all of this was still fresh on the minds of the Cuban officials, it seemed to connect the dots, so to speak, very quickly to point fingers to the CIA when this disease broke out on the Cuban island and affected all the hogs. Now, you said that was 1971, mm-hmm. but officially, anti-animal biological weapons on the, the uh, experiments on the island were supposedly stopped in 1969 with a, an executive order from President Nixon. Yes, yes. So. And again, we all trust the government. They do we exactly trust Nixon, what they're right? supposed to do. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Now, all that being said, depending on what you want to believe and whose side you might find yourself on, there is only one location that has the live virus of the African swine flu that I had talked about. And it is found on none other than Plum Island. So again, it 
winds up in Cuba. Just connecting the dots, it does seem possible that it would have had to have come somehow, some way from Plum Island. And the way it was discovered, the African swine flu infected Cuba during that 1971 outbreak, that would be through ticks. Again, ticks and the research of using ticks as biohazard, biowarfare comes from our good scientists, the Nazi scientists who studied and worked there on Plum Island. It was exactly that type of study and research that made Eric Traud, former Nazi scientist now in charge, or at that time now in charge of the Plum Island, that he specialized in. And it's kind of weird you mentioned ticks because we think we all know that uh, ticks are carriers of Lyme disease, mm-hmm. which is named for the city Lyme, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And Lyme, Connecticut was where the first documenting case in America of Lyme disease was detected. So many coincidences. Which is only 13 miles northeast of Plum Island. 13 miles, you say? Now, they do say that there's a 3,000-year-old mummy that has Lyme disease. I did read this. Yeah. In, in, inside, you know, in, in its body. But how does a disease that no one had ever seen for, let's say, 3,000 years, right. suddenly show up just 13 miles, miles. from a facility yeah whose sole responsibility is to study things like, oh, I don't know, Lyme disease? So they obviously didn't create Lyme disease, but they took samples of a forgotten, almost dead disease and brought it back to life. If you want to talk about little, you know, let's let's be a little more recent and something we've all had to struggle with and deal Mm. with, you know, the... The gain-of-function studies on COVID. Yes. You've probably had COVID a million times in your life. It was basically a common cold. Yep. And this new strain of COVID is, of course, you know, we've been dealing with it since 2020 and and the fallout. And, and to be honest, I think it's part of the reason why my voice isn't quite as clear as it used to be a year ago. Because, you know, I, I had a go-around with COVID not all that long ago myself. And, uh, you know, again, COVID had been around. It wasn't new. No. But you have a lab in, you know, this this city in China, and their job is to study and make COVID more dangerous. So seems like they they were successful. I don't I don't want to get political. Or yeah, we try not to get political, but, but uh, we we have made the comment before, so I think it's safe to do it again. It's like the words "cold" and "flu" aren't even used in our society anymore. John Stewart put it the best way that I can think anybody can, and and I'll go off on this little aside, and then we can jump back. But in Wuhan, there is a lab called the Novel Coronavirus Research Facility. Well, if you're in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and you smell chocolate, mm. you know where it came from. <laughs> <laughs> now, going back and just kind of putting an end to this loop, you know, Bill had talked about it. Because of this whole Cuban incident that took place in 1971, as Bill had mentioned, President Richard Nixon had ordered any and all bioweapon research to stop. So the CIA couldn't have possibly <laughs> been involved because we weren't supposed to be doing any of that for two years prior to that event. But, uh, you know, a government document was discovered titled Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities of the United States Senate. It fined Plum Island with unauthorized storage of toxic agents back in September of 1975, even after the Cuba event. That was six years after President Richard Nixon outlawed them. So, obviously, not everybody got the memo. Why do government reports always have such ungodly long titles? I don't know. Why can't it just be something simple like, Hey, that crazy crap that's happening at Plum Island or something like that. The stuff I mean, that wasn't supposed to I happen seven years ago. I know it's supposed to sound ago. official, but I mean, literally, you could just yeah. say. Government operations Plum- with respect yeah. to intelligence activities of the United States Senate. Just say unrevealed activity at Plum Island or something. I mean. I think they have a table full of people and everybody gets to add one word to it as they go around Robin. That probably sounds right. <laughs> well, if it makes anybody feel any better, in 1994, a group of Russian scientists inspected the facility and they determined it to be free of biological weapons. It's good to know. You know, it only took feel, 20 years. Yeah, feel safer. So like we were saying, you know, Plum Island is a biological protection level three research facility. And that means a whole lot. So after, after the island was taken over by the USDA, you know, they, they built this facility. It is a self-sufficient installation, has its own fire department, power plant, water treatment plant, its own security. And being a level three protection facility means that only trained personnel in special protective clothing are even allowed to have access to these labs. There are only a couple other facilities comparable to it in America, 
one of which being the U.S. Army Lab at Fort Detrick, Maryland, and the other would be the CDC headquarters in Atlanta. So these are places where we're investigating, like the CDC headquarters. I mean, that's there's some serious research going on there. And essentially, it is just described as a high-security prison for the most dangerous animal diseases known to man. And, and that's where they're conducting this research on animal pathogens. Like I said, the original mission statement, they want to protect America and livestock and agriculture from the threat of foreign animal diseases. And of course, with that outbreak of foot and mouth, you know, that was what they were sort of established for. Now, the lab does employ about 200 people right now, none of which live on the island. Nobody lives on Plum Island. They have to take that 20-minute ferry ride from the mainland. The waters are patrolled around the clock by armed patrols, like Eric talked about earlier. And they you just, are not welcome. And apparently they have very nice beaches on the island and makes it kind of a place where people want to go, but they are not allowed there. Imagine some like millionaire driving his yacht up. Hey, this looks like a good beach for us to set up. Now they do have biocontainment checkpoints. You know, they want to prevent diseases from being able to escape. So as you leave, you know, you have to basically have to take a mandatory shower with water that is in a closed system which means there's no way for water to get out. It, they, it is held in tanks. It is decontaminated. It is processed there on the island. There's no way for this water allegedly to seep out in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the labs have negative pressure, sort of that airlock you know, feature, so that if it, when you open a door, the air blows into the room as opposed to out of the room so that nothing can get out that way. Uh, and if an animal should get loose on the island, it is exterminated immediately. They don't even try to recapture anything that gets loose. They kill it outright. According to uh, John S. Verico of the United States Department of Homeland Security, and this is a quote, some employees had to shower a dozen or more times in a single day, depending on where they work. We also have armed guards around the clock who are specially trained to protect the facility and our employees. Now, despite all these efforts, it does seem as if every now and then something gets out. For sure. Well, just one example of this, uh, yet another example, I will say, uh, took place in 1975. Now, this, in perspective, was six years after this was all outlawed by President Nixon. Well, only weaponization research was outlawed. They were still allowed to research the diseases. True point. Little loophole, but yes. But yeah, they weren't supposed to weaponize anything. In 1975, an overnight security guard was making his outdoor walks on the fence perimeter of a storage facility in Connecticut. He had just purchased a new pair of boots. And so he was prepared to put his feet through a little bit of hell in breaking them in over the next coming nights as he did a lot of walking. Now that night he remembers pain on one side of one particular ankle. And he just assumed, wow, you know, these new boots are already doing a number on my feet. So when he got off from work, he drove home and was quick to pull his sore feet out of those new boots. And then he discovered that that area was basically radiating heat and had become somewhat inflamed. Now he went to bed you know, trying to give his feet a break, propped him up probably that night before his next shift started, thinking, okay, it'll be better in the morning. However, he awoke to severe pain, and the area in question had become blistered and tight-skinned. Photos that I actually even saw of that wound was kind of a whelp or a blister with red inflammation resembling a bullseye. He pulled a light close and examined, feeling a small bump in the center of that bullseye, he then spotted a small tick still alive. And he so quickly, it sounds like Lyme disease. Absolutely. He quickly grabbed a pair of tweezers, but the tick, he said, came apart in pieces. Now, it was alive when he started working on it, so, but he, he got the best of it that he could. He didn't think a lot about it. He was familiar with tick bites, so you know, he pushed through work the next couple nights until he noticed his joints started hurting more and more, and he becomes sick with flu-like symptoms. But it wasn't the flu. In 1975, the small town of Old Lyme, Connecticut, which Bill had mentioned, experienced an outbreak of a new disease, we'll say. Some got rashes. Others ran high-grade fevers. Some experienced painful joints. And some, unfortunately, had all of those symptoms, but also with shortness of breath, dizziness, and ruptured blood vessels in the eyes. A lesser known symptom of Lyme disease can actually alter your body chemistry and create in you a condition that makes you allergic to the proteins in red meat. I read that. Some substance in red meat, so it's like a delayed reaction, and then you have an allergic reaction when you eat red meat. It basically makes you allergic to red meat for, as far as we know, the rest of your life. Oh my goodness. I I couldn't survive that. (laughs) No, no. 
Now, some of those people affected even become delusional and part of them paralyzed in areas of their body. Now, originally, local doctors called it arthritis. And even that name of Lyme arthritis was given in honor of their small community in town at that time during the outbreak. It would be two years later before doctors would make the connection with Lyme arthritis is actually a bite from a deer tick and what we now know and call today as Lyme disease. So just a few short years later, 1978, an unknown disease was contracted by animals just outside this lab. And um, according to government, all the animals were quickly eradicated, but you know, no one can be entirely certain whether any made it off the island or not could have those running around. Reports on the incident have since been classified by the intelligence department. So we don't know what disease they had. We don't know how many they killed. We don't know anything about it. It's right here in your backwoods, New York, but you don't need to know. And then, uh, there were also two incidents in 2004 of foot and mouth disease being released, which we believe had been eradicated in the United States since 1929. Obviously, you know, they still have, they still have, they say one thing, but it doesn't seem to all add up. Well, again, they still have foot and mouth disease and, and I'm sure they keep it there so they can come up with new ways to combat it. But again, diseases mutate and things like that. Things change. So I don't know just how stable that all is. Now in my opening, you know, I alluded to possibly human experiments. So is the government allowing human experiments? Well, number one, we would have the possible incident of the Cuba uh, ordeal with the African swine disease, although CIA denies you know, any involvement with that. Number two, if you look at a map of the radius around Plum Island, it's clear that in 1975, the incident of Old Lyme, Connecticut is also very close, very plausible. You know, according to the government, they also never researched Lyme disease on the island. But they did use ticks. So that's, you know, they're making that, you know, that connection. But yeah, did they or didn't they use the Lyme? But there are others, some even admittedly confessed by the U.S. government. Number three, in 1930s, now this doesn't necessarily have to go with Plum Island, but just kind of setting the background. 1930s, the Tuskegee Airmen were infected. They actually, government infected 400 black male pilots with syphilis to see how they would adjust and cope and being denied treatment. Well, if we're going to talk about things like that to, to show what our government's capable of, I don't remember where it was, but there was a school where they served irradiated oatmeal. Nice. And had a control group. You know, there was a group of students who, who weren't given any irradiated oatmeal. And then the, the students who were just to see how they would react. Now, were so, they told about this in advance? No, this was a this was no, blind, um, blind taste test study. And apparently, not far, St. Louis, they stored radioactive waste in a landfill and never officially acknowledged it until there was a fire in that landfill. Oh, that gosh. Risked potential exposure. Our government is capable of some truly terrible stuff. Well, number four, the U.S. has uh, infected, and this is openly, prisoners to cow blood and exposed people intentionally to plutonium. Number five, Operation Sea Spray was a secret test in 1950s where they dropped bacteria over the entire city of San Francisco, California. Number six, in 1966, the Army released bacteria into the New York subway to simulate a biological attack and to see how people would react and how law officials would uh, react. Number seven, Project 112 and Project Shad exposed thousands of our military personnel with biological agents like BZ and nerve toxins like sarin gas. Now, this was done on ships, mostly Navy, but it also affected other branches. On record, the crews were given gas masks to wear when they were exposed at least 46 times over a period of the next three to five years. Now, there are no official records at least released. And to, to speak of how many people lost their lives or had side effects, as most of these files are still classified. And there are more, lots, lots more. Other records indicate human experiments, knowingly or unknowingly, having continued through at least the 1990s, some even on children. And most anything after the 1990s is still under classification, so we wouldn't know about it if it did occur. Some government may be innocent, that is true enough, as it seems like different branches don't always play by the rules, nor do they report that to their officials. So it, we're, 
I'm not trying to do a government smear campaign here. I think there, and many people may disagree, but I think there are still some good government officials out there. Well, agree to disagree. Agree to disagree. (laughs) But there are worst ones that just absolutely, they, they don't seem to play by any rules. They don't report to anybody. Now, rolling this up, there were actually humanoid remains that was found in 2010. Something occurred that blew all of these other unknown creatures out of the water, so to speak. It was a human body that was found washed up on the shore. They could tell it was a black male, approximately six foot, six foot two tall. Said so he had a, a large build. A large, mu- yeah, like he was a, a muscular guy. build. But, but I think what really set him apart, there were two things of note. One, he had what they described as very long fingers. I think nearly twice as long. We're talking ET extra, extraterrestrial type fingers. And according to some stories, also had the scars to indicate recent brain surgery. Five precise drilled holes in the brain area, you know, kind of leading to an evasive brain surgery or possible experimentation. Now, also, there were no signs of recent trauma or wounds recent of what could have caused this man's death. Now, the real question here is, did he wash up on the shore of Plum Island or did he die trying to escape? Good point. So... Plum Island's been accused of all sorts of things, you know, germ warfare, anthrax investigation, monsters, the creation of animal-human hybrids. Crossbreds, yeah. All kinds of stuff. And so when things in that area happen that are kind of weird, people always kind of look to Plum Island to say, you know, that, that's, that's, that's what happened. That's the source. On July 12th in 2008, Montauk resident uh, Jenna Hewitt and three of her friends were on the beach there, Ditch Plains Beach, not too far from, from Plum Island when they discovered a strange creature it was nearly hairless. And when I say nearly hairless, it had hair. The body was bloated, and that was presumably from being in the ocean for a while. Stand to reason. It appeared to have both a beak and teeth, sharp teeth, I might add. And the limbs seemed weirdly proportioned in relation to the rest of the body. Now, when Jenna was interviewed by the paper later on, because she took a picture, there's a very famous picture of this, oh, yes. the Montauk monster on the internet. She jokingly suggested that maybe the animal had come from Plum Island. And of course, people ran with that. The Montauk monster became an escaped weird animal hybrid. Now, you can Straight look at the pictures. Straight out of the X-Files yeah. here. <laughs> you can look at the pictures. They're, they're, it's a weird looking thing. Now, a lot of people have tried to come up with some low key, like, oh, it's obviously this or that or the other. And You know, I will say that growing up in the country, I have come across walking out in the woods and stuff a lot of animals that have died very quickly. I mean, hair loss, bloating, it can distort something. Oh, and it doesn't even soft, soft tissue eyes. Yeah. Tongue, it doesn't like even that. resemble what it once does. And it does look a little scary looking into it and taking some of these common explanations. You know, you have experts on one side saying it's gotta be this, but then you have other people saying, well, it's not this because was it a raccoon? Well, the legs appear to be too long in relation to the body to be a raccoon. Was it a sea turtle? Well, sea turtles don't have fur or teeth. Yeah, and you would think the shell would at least be a portion of that body. Was it some sort of rodent? Well, all rodents have two giant curved incisors in the front of their mouth. Rabbits, It did kind of look like one of the rodents of unusual size out of Princess Bride. Yeah, but those aren't real. Oh, oh, okay. Was it some sort of dog-like creature? Well, it doesn't have the, the forehead eye ridge. Or feet like a canine. The 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 finger. It almost has like fingers, which is why people thought it was a raccoon. Well, you know, hogs and pigs obviously would have hooves. Well, and this had toes or fingers. Say, some, or, some people said it was a sheep, but you know, sheep don't have sharp teeth, and they're they're herbivores. They eat plants. They have flat teeth. You mentioned dogs, and they're not hooves. but yeah, this thing had claws in some areas. Dogs don't have big claws. They have a dew claw, but I mean, these things were large. It almost resembled to me like. Something you would expect a wolverine or a badger. I mean, something that dug aggressively. And I, it did have a tail, if I remember correctly, with the picture. The, the primary story that I've heard since then is that this was a dogfighting league washout. Uh, this was some sort of dog that had been discarded because it, it didn't do what it was supposed to do. The reason it appears to have a beak is because that was part of the skull and the teeth have been Soft tissue had run away. I, I just don't know that I buy into that, though. The creature looks weird. It looks extremely weird. And again, I mean, a dog, I guess, does have toes, but these toes looked... Almost like fingers. Yeah, almost like, like short a raccoon. fingers. Like a raccoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And that's why the raccoon thing seems so likely. But looking at it, it really doesn't look like a raccoon either. Now, I will say by looking at the picture, there's nothing really there for scale. Uh, and maybe I should have no. dove in a little bit more. I don't remember ever seeing, you know, like this creature was approximately a foot, two I, foot, three foot. I really think foot. that's like the only picture. There have been other incidents of strange creatures washing up along the coast there. Um, in 2011, March, a creature washed up on Northville Beach in Long Island. Uh, the student who found it told the Riverhead News, quote, the being I found seems to resemble the Montauk monster in many ways. Huh. He immediately compared it to. It was also a hairless and bloated creature, and it, it did. I mean, I saw a picture of it. It looked very similar to the Montauk monster. There was another similar creature in 2012 that washed up under the Brooklyn Bridge that they called the East River Monster. And there was another one in 2019 when uh, a strange creature washed up on the shore of Staten Island. This one did have a picture, another uh, dog in the picture, so there was a little bit of a sense of scale. And I will say this one is lumped in with the Montauk Monster. This one clearly looked to me like a dead raccoon. So I would say that one was a raccoon. But again, you know, it could have been whatever. But like you said, when a a creature dies and it starts to decay, and especially for us, we're not, you know, on the shore or anything. When a creature is in water for a prolonged amount of time. Yeah, bloating and stuff. And and you got the little, and then you got the crabs and stuff on the shore that that are eating. I mean, it's going to change the way the body looks. So a lot of these are hard to identify and, and could maybe be just regular animals that we're not recognizing. But I do believe I read where they had called in like, I won't say like super astute experts, but like some local veterinaries and stuff. And they were even quickly to point out that this isn't a dog. Yeah. You know, this isn't a, a hog. Now, another interesting possible connection, we'll say. There's a thing called a Lone Star Tick that was added to Northern America. I've heard about those. I've seen some articles about them. They're pretty gnarly. Nasty. Now, between 1966 and 1969, government researchers released 300,000 of these ticks from the Plum Island Research Facility, one of which was known as the Lone Star Tick. Why they did this? Not real clear. A lot of speculation, a lot of conspiracy. Go home, little ticks. Yeah, go home, be free. Your job is done. But, you know, ticks are bad enough when it comes to natural predators. But add biohazard infection to those ticks, and it gets dialed up more than just a couple notches. Well, and if I remember in my reading, and this is not related, so this would have been some time ago, these particular ticks are very aggressive. Oh, my. And attacking swarms, hordes, whatever. Yes. I've seen pictures of animals covered in them. Covered. They, oh, it's, it's awful. When you have... When you infect the Lone Star Tick, it's just downright brutal. But even if you take an infection of a disease from the Lone Star Tick, it is a true predator. This little tiny tick, you can't imagine. But you see, the Lone Star Tick is the most aggressive of all in Northern America. Unlike their counterparts, who just simply rest up on a blade of grass or a weed waiting for its victim to come by, Even the young of the, which are called nymphs of the Lone Stars, can feed almost upon birth. We'd call them seed ticks here in Missouri. Yes. You can't even hardly see them. It literally looks like flecks of pepper. I mean, that's how small these things are. The Lone Star tick can survive months without any food. They can breathe underwater. They can survive being frozen solid. It will not kill them. Females. Lone Star ticks can lay hundreds of thousands of eggs, repopulating at extreme magnitudes. Then, Dang it, Eric, you got me itching all over now. Yeah. Then, the scariest of all, the Lone Star tick is a team hunter, as Bill said. They can swarm into giant balls of ticks that can add up to thousands Imagine a swarm of these ticks the size of a baseball. Then when they find a victim, hundreds of bites can occur in a matter of moments. And remember, in case you forgot or I didn't mention, the Lone Star tick can bite more than once. They actually can bite or have been known to bite six to eight times each. They carry all sorts of nasty diseases, Rocky Mountain fever, Heartland virus, Tularia, just to name a few. Heck, they even have the ability for a delayed allergic reaction to red meat that Bill talked about. 
which I will probably butcher this, but alfagal sugar allergic reaction, I believe is the official term. That is something that is found in red meat, and this can cause shortness of breath, swelling of the windpipe, and swelling of the tongue and or breaking out in hives. So these little buggers can attack you, and then maybe a week later, you have a barbecue in your backyard and have this massive allergic reaction where your windpipe swells shut, your tongue swells, and I mean, it could literally kill you. Now, we've talked a lot about Plum Island, and they've boasted being one of the safest facilities in all America until it wasn't yet again and possibly yet again. In 1978, that there was an outbreak of foot and mouth disease that escaped causing every livestock animal on that island to be eradicated. I think Bill mentioned that, but not before many of them were butchered for meat for a meal. Yup. Several employees at that time came forward and stated personnel, they got the notification, got to put every, every livestock animal, goats, cows, sheep, horses, whatever, down. But they stated certain personnel went out and cut piles of steaks, top-notch choice cuts, and prepared for a massive barbecue lunch for anybody that wanted to participate of all the employees there on Plum Island, which I believe you mentioned around 200. Before the rest of the animals were put down, they ate the infected meat. Now, I don't know how all that works. But I don't think I'd want to do that. Well, there's a reason why when you cook meat, you're supposed to get it to a certain temperature, and that is to kill any potential disease vector, spreader, carrier, whatever. So maybe you can eat an animal infected with it if you cook it. Like, you know, if you, if you like your steak well done, then. Yeah. I don't know if I would trust somebody else to cook that for me on a barbecue grill. I'm well, just saying. I don't really trust anybody. That's just me. So. <laughs> and I definitely wouldn't trust meat I found on Plum Island. Yeah, we got that right. <laughs> what am I eating? Is it dog? Is it hog? Is it rat? Is it coon? Yes, it's all in one animal. (laughs) We combined them all. You ready for headlines, Eric? Yes, by all means, I'm ready for headlines. So mine is from the Associated Press, May 24th, 2023. As if Plum Island wasn't scary enough all the way over there on the East Coast. The headline is, after years of controversy... National Biodefense Lab opens in Kansas. What? So after over a decade of controversy and delay, the United States' most secure biosecurity lab for research on potentially deadly animal and plant diseases has opened in Manhattan, Kansas. Great to know. And although it is newly open, researchers there are not expected to begin working on biohazards right away. And we can believe anything they say. Well, of course. For more than a year, according to the people there, uh, the staff will conduct compliance and regulatory work and begin protocols and begin to prepare protocols and operating procedures and train to work with the pathogens. They're not there yet. According to Director Alfonso Clavillo, they will check all the systems according to the international standards and national standards, and only after we have that approval will we, will we be able to do any real work. We expect that to be late 2024. We should be able to have that approved. I can hear the New York people saying, you know, we're going to be shutting down Plum Island. Yay! Crowd goes wild. And then you say, and moving it to the central United States area, middle of the livestock agriculture. And we're like, what the? Mm. So the facility was initially estimated to cost $451 million. Pocket change. You know, well, for our government. For the government. Now, the price blew up to $1.25 billion oh. after the National Research Council published a report in 2010 that questioned the idea of putting a facility in the heart of cattle country. You don't say. Dealing with diseases meant to infect cattle. What? In a state with a history of large destructive tornadoes. Ooh. And so the design of the lab was changed accordingly to reduce the possibility of releasing any deadly pathogens. It's now supposed to be tornado proof. It's almost like the people who planned this didn't really think it out. Well, it is our government. So. Okay, true, true. <laughs> they okay. probably found a place where they could build for cheap and went with it. Just so, threw a dart at the map. Hey, Kansas is good. They got like, some cheap property there. It's right there. in the middle, right? It's right in the middle. And that may be why they put it there. You know, that, that makes it a less likely target for, you know, foreign powers. This lab is going to replace the aging facility on Plum Island, New York. And officials in Plum Island, they fought hard to keep the lab there. And then several other states and and. Everybody, you know, politicians got involved. I mean, there was a whole big thing. 
and Kansas was finally selected in 2009. And originally they expected to open the lab in 2016, but then things got delayed, economic concerns, safety concerns, politicians stepping in, still wanting to move the project to their state because they all got to get their little piece of the pie. Well, and again, I, I got to be honest. I mean, I, I also came across that story and, and, you know, I think we talked a little bit about it, but I don't remember seeing any of that. And I want to say I heard about it maybe once or twice, but I don't remember like any big, Hey, this is what we're going to do. I just remember maybe a blurb somewhere. And I look at a lot of conspiracy websites and I used to look at a lot more. So something like this definitely would have popped up. Well, again, you know, you're considering the whole 2020 COVID fiasco, similar, maybe a little different, but you can kind of see why they want to keep that under the wrap. This new facility will be the nation's only large animal biosafety level four lab. Level four? Now, like I said, Plum Island itself is level three. What level four means is that it has the capacity to handle diseases, pathogens, to which we do not currently have treatments or countermeasures. Oh my gosh, I want a job there. So the diseases not. at this facility, we don't even know how to cure. They're, they they have no possibly treatment. possibly go wrong? Uh, level three means that those diseases can be treated, but they are still very, very dangerous. So that's what Plum Island was. Is there a level five? What, what, it, would, level what would that five even be? be? I mean, if you can't treat it, what level five? You don't even know what you're I doing? I guess if you just open the Is vial, the those, world's dead. I what, don't know. The, the known unknowns or what? <laughs> <laughs> now, it is unclear right now what's going to be researched specifically at Kansas and what's going to be moved from Plum Island to Kansas. But Plum Island is for sure shutting down. Well, th- yeah, they're going to move that that capacity. Now, a spokesperson, so we're going to be able to go like go do tours there and stuff. Maybe you can actually tour Plum Island if you get approval from the government, but you have to pass a a top secret security clearance background check. There yeah. have been people that have toured it though. Wow. Now they are saying currently that no animals or actual equipment will be moved from Plum Island to Kansas, and that this place currently hires two hundred and eighty people. And expected to have more than 400 when fully staffed. Well, they don't need to keep animals there in the facility because there's lots of cattle and stuff. Just, you know. That would be close. It's close. Well, we won't even take them. Eminent domain. We'll just fly over and spray them and we can monitor it. You abduct them with the alien abduction. technology. I've seen that episode of (laughs) X-Files. Well, my headlines, uh, excuse me, while I remove my headphones and I put on my aluminum tinfoil hat. Got to position this here. Well, now, we've talked quite a lot about Plum Island and various different diseases and outbreaks. And, you know, we did touch on COVID a little bit. There were possible connections with with government. So, again, I'm wearing my aluminum tinfoil hat. Recent article in USA Today from uh, 2022, and we're going to talk about uh, whether you love him or you hate him, Justin Bieber. Okay. Okay, Bill says. I'm going to look at you, and I'm (laughs) going to wait to see how you can bring Justin Bieber into this story and have it make any kind of sense. Bring it right on in. Justin, and, and this is the USA Today 2022 article, The Claim. Justin Bieber said the COVID-19 vaccine caused his facial paralysis. We're talking about viruses. COVID obviously is a virus, you know. So after pop singer Justin Bieber announced he was suffering from Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, a neurological disorder that causes paralysis of the nerves in the face, his anti-vaccine social media users speculated that the condition was a side effect for, you guessed it, the COVID-19 vaccine. Now users on Twitter and Telegram and TikTok, they're all claiming an article ex- uh, excerpt is proof that Bieber confirmed the rumors. Justin Bieber now admits he regrets taking the COVID-19 vaccine. This is word for word, saying that it left him with permanent paralysis in his face, end quote. Reads the, the uh, excerpt of the story of the article on an Instagram post from June 30th. Now, Bieber made a confession to a close friend who later leaked the information to the Daily Mail. We got a couple disconnects there, possibly, but Bieber reportedly plans on suing Pfizer for causing his paralysis, despite the fact the company is shielded from any and all liability. Now, within a few days, Justin Bieber's wife, Haley Baldwin Bieber, suffered similar effects like that of her husband with what many described as stroke-like effects. 
at the same time reported as possibly being caused to the new Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine, which the couple were required to do before going out on his most recent musical tour at, at that time. Now, a quote appeared online, which soon spread like wildfire. So sad, both Justin Bieber and his wife have serious COVID C-19 vaccine side effects. She had a stroke and heart surgery, and he has facial paralysis from Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, a known vaccine side effect. A few weeks after this occurrence and speculated original statement from Justin Bieber himself, he went public and made this official statement to help squelch the rumors. On June 10th, pop singer Justin Bieber announced in a video on Instagram he was canceling his upcoming shows because he had contracted Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, an illness caused by the Varelica zoster virus, which also causes the chickenpox. Following Bieber's announcement, social media saw a large amount of false and misleading claims about the COVID-19 vaccines and the connection that it has with Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. So there we have it. But do you believe it? Again, I still got my tinfoil hat on here. Some say he was coerced into making that statement. But I will add, there does seem to be a bit more of a handful of recent strange illnesses and many actual deaths among football players, sports athletes, even newer generation wrestlers, to which should be in prime health, but state they have had the vaccine in order to perform now do their job. I know where you're going with that wrestler bit. Yes, yes. I loved Bray Wyatt. I haven't watched wrestling in a long time, and Bray Wyatt was amazing. He was, it's my belief that he could have been the next generation's Undertaker, and Undertaker was one of my favorites. Yep. Bray had an underlying heart condition that was diagnosed before, so I don't think COVID is what really got him. And it's eluding me. Who was the uh, the female wrestler here just the last month or two? I don't know. Ah, I can't remember her name. I don't know about her. I knew about Bray Wyatt. He's the only one I knew about, but yeah. No, Bray had a heart condition, and that was known. And, and I think that's probably, I'm removing the tinfoil hat now, you know, but uh, yeah, this this goes to show you, you know, there's there's so many conspiracy theories out there. And believe what you want, I'm, I'm trying to be a neutral party I here. I don't want to say the virus, or I don't want to say the vaccine is bad. I'm not going to sit here and say that. I think there is a certain part of our society that benefits a great deal yeah, from it. I think it's good for some I think, people. I don't think it's meant for everybody. I think if you have some of the comorbidity traits, and, and there's a huge list of, of things. Blood pressure was one of them, which concerned me. I obviously have high blood pressure. And me. Uh, being overweight, Yep. which when COVID happened, I was I weighed a lot more than I do now, to be honest. I'm diabetic. Um, I'm diabetic. That's one of the hit traits. I did get two shots. I don't know that I ever got the third. Uh, well, I know I didn't get the third. I don't know why I said that. I got two shots. I, I was never like, got Bill, the th- if you don't know if you got the third, maybe there yeah. were some side effects. I, I never got the third. Still ended up with COVID. I believe I had COVID more than once. I had COVID at least once before I took the shot. I know that for a fact. I had COVID here, as you well know, just well, a few weeks back. And I, I think I had it maybe two or three weeks before that. There was a the last week of August, actually. I got so sick for a couple of days, I barely got out of bed. And uh, my wife was sick. She'd been sick a couple of days before. We had all the right symptoms. Yep. yep. Of course, nowadays, everything's a symptom. Oh, so I yes. hate to be that guy. I'm not, I'm not, we're not going to bash the vaccine. We're not going to say no, no. one way or the other until someone can conclusively come forward and say, yes, we have evidence of ABC here. I don't, I'm, you know, if you want to get the vaccine, get the vaccine. Uh, like I said, I got two of the shots. I think my wife got three. Uh, again, my wife still believe we, we don't know for a fact it was COVID back in August, but like I said, there was a couple of days I could barely get out of bed. Well, Sarah and I both, we think, had it. We did not go get tested, but my father did test positive and we were exposed to him. So, I mean, it kind of yeah. stood to reason. Well, with my wife's career path, she's exposed to a whole lot of stuff from a whole lot of places. So, Bill, question. You're walking along the beaches, maybe hoping to spot a shark's tooth or something that I know you hey, avidly collect. Don't say maybe. Maybe. That's 100% what I'm doing. You're going to find an eight-inch megalodon tooth. Well, no. I mean, I'll be realistic. I'll find a little one. But if I'm on the beach, that's at least half what I'm doing. But instead of that magical tooth to add to your collection, you come across a rotting corpse. I find a Montauk monster? A Montauk monster. Exactly as we described. Half dog, half pig with claws 
and maybe a part eagle's raccoon. beak, part raccoon. What would you do? Now you're out there by yourself. Let me clarify. Your kids and wife, they're done with you. You have walked this beach looking for teeth all day. <laughs> what do you mean they're done like, with me? <laughs> we are going to the house. If oh. you want to go stroll the beach again, I just thought knock she meant like out. I was some old man living alone. Well, they didn't like throw you in the water. Well, no, know, they just like locked they the door and told you to walk the beach. What would you do? Well, in this day and age, you not always, to your family who locks you out. In house, this day and age, you always have your phone on you. <laughs> yes, I'm taking a picture and I'm sending a group text. And we probably said this before, but I mean, you and my wife and my kids, and then I will get a response from my oldest son telling me that it's clearly a raccoon or a dog or whatever, because <laughs> he doesn't go in for any of this unexplainable nonsense. He's not that dude. But yeah, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna get excited. I'm taking pictures, and like you said, for scale, like I'm gonna like. There you put go. my hand out there or That's whatever. What I, that was one of the things I was fishing. Because I, I want to be able to say, oh, it was this big. Yeah. Am I looking at something that's six inches or am I looking at something that's six foot? Or? I, I, when I've gone walking along the beach, I I, I admit I look for, for things, you know, hope, hopefully to find something weird. I never did. Now, I, I, I got a second part to this question. You happen, well, you've been locked out of your beach house that you've written for a while. So, <laughs> so my, my family's done, they, done. They give you a cooler with some bottles of water in it. You've I'm drank them all. I'm it. That's gross. And... This thing would easily fit in I'm your little cooler. Are you going to pick no, it up? Or are you going to touch body. it? Are you, and if it comes from Montauk or if it came from well, Plum Island. Where? Okay. Maybe but, it's on the North Carolina okay. beach. So That's have, where Megalodon teeth else. are at. Yeah. It's still a dead body. That's gross. I'm not touching. What, would, would you? I don't know. You'd scoop up some corpse? <sighs> we found a dying starfish and scooped that thing up. Yeah, but that's <laughs> that's like. Walking down the road and be like, ooh, look at this dead skunk. Well, that's a lot more <laughs> common than finding a half dog mutant pig with claws. Yeah, but here's if the If you deal. found a dead Sasquatch, what would you do? <laughs> you mean to tell me you wouldn't like cut some hair off that thing or something? Oh, no, I'd be taking samples. I can imagine you trying to drag an eight foot Sasquatch off the beach. If you don't think I wouldn't try to drag a dead Sasquatch somewhere. <laughs> but it's a corpse, Bill. You just said this. Okay, that's, but there's, okay, this <laughs> The Montauk monster could the have been something else. There's a gray line here. The Sasquatch could be something else. Okay. Well, if it's a dude in a costume, somebody's going to want to, well, you probably shouldn't touch it then, right? <laughs> you don't want to disturb the crime scene. All right. All right. Damn you, Eric. Oh, those <laughs> foiled again. We hope that you've enjoyed yet another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Before we close, uh, I want to give out a shout out to longtime listeners, happen to be family members. Uh, but Sean and Kay Ripley, I think they have uh, listened to every single one of our podcasts. They may be a couple weeks behind, but I uh, stumbled across them uh, actually at a local Cornerstone Subs and Pizzas here a couple weeks back. And Sean is my brother-in-law and, and Kay is my, uh, my wife's sister. But Sean even uh, caught me and he goes, hey, man, we were driving back from Springfield and we was listening to the latest podcast, The Philosopher's Stone, that stuff about the urine. And it crystallizes and all that. So. That's gross. Yeah, it was pretty gross. But uh, thanks, well, thanks for sticking with us and listening to us about crystal, crystal-fied urine in the Philosopher's Stone. I do know we have an ever-growing contingent of teenage girl listeners, thanks to my daughter who's spreading the good word. So spreading I guess the gospel of the nightmares. We, we can do a little shout-out if you're a friend of my daughter's. Then we, we appreciate that. And I think you, I heard, tell your siblings and your parents. And I think I heard some reference that your daughter might even make a, a voice appearance. Maybe on we, we talked about it and, and we're not totally against it. We, we would have to work out the specifics, but my, my daughter has volunteered to be a, a do a guest episode with a couple of her friends. And I told her that if she could come up with a topic that worked, yeah. that we would entertain that idea. Well, we hope that yet again, you've enjoyed another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks for all of our long-term listeners. Those of you who are just joining in, follow us on Facebook. We've got our own site there. You can communicate with us. Bill is working diligently uh, to YouTube. Uh, You can find us on a host of different platforms. Thanks for supporting us and listening to us. Hey, real quick, call to action. I think Eric would agree. We'd like to grow this. Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Absolutely. If you could, if you're listening on Apple, if you would go and give us a review and, and rate us. Uh, if you have some feedback, that's fine too. Uh, whatever whatever platform you're listening, follow us, rate us, give us some reviews. That helps get some recognition 
and gets our name out there. We do have a Facebook page, Nightmares on the Lost Highway. You can easily find us if you want to communicate with us. If you want to share some uh, possibilities for future podcasts with us, you know, reach out. We want to talk with you guys. Residents and beachcombers alike. Was it Montauk? I thought it was the... I have something different. <laughs> I had Montauk Island. Uh, Ditch Plains Beach. Oh, yeah, Montauk Island. Okay, my bad. Okay, so I thought I that's knew where it, it sounded got, wrong. It got its name. You're right. You're right. Okay. There was an Al Qaeda rep. Uh, rep- I was going to say representative, like he works for a company. Or... You ready for headlines, Eric? Well, are we doing a question? The question comes after it. Oh, Question is leading out of the episode. Um, then we may want to actually put my. I hope you've enjoyed or whatever at the end of that. But. Well, just go ahead and just do a close. Or we did one. Well, just. Okay. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And we'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.